Hey everybody, welcome to episode 5 of The Suburban Urbanist. Uh, today I'm going to do something a little different. As you may know, if you listened to the first episode, I've been listening to various podcasts for a while now. Uh, one that I regularly tune into is Armchair Expert by Dax Shepard and Monica Padman. Like most celebrity-driven podcasts, Armchair brings in other celebrities to talk about their backstories. But they also do this thing where they bring in experts from different walks of life and do special shows that they call Experts on Expert. And this concept gave me an idea. I teach in a master's program for public administration. Currently, I'm teaching public policy analysis, which is a great course to talk about, especially given the current state of politics and government in the world and the, the role that we all play in it. And so with that, I, I thought, why not turn my lectures into episodes and call it the lecture series? Not only do I get good content for the show, but it, it's also good practice for me as I'll be teaching an online class for the first time next semester. And I've thought about doing, still doing lectures for that and posting them in the course, like slide share presentations or something. I, I haven't figured out that yet. But before I start rambling on about that, uh, we can get into this topic, but but first, I want to remind everybody to check out my web, website, suburbanurbanist at suburbanurbanist.com, or you can hit me up by email, suburbanurbanist at gmail.com. Okay, let's go ahead and do this thing. So here's episode five of the Suburban Urbanist. What is public policy, government institutions, and policy actors? goals of, of this lecture series are going to be to help you understand public policy, how government works, and uh, how government makes policy decisions. Also to think about the implications of policy choices and to develop the critical thinking skills to consider alternate courses of action. Today is pretty much going to be about stuff that I hope you all know uh, if you took a civics class. Um, in high school or or took any sort of political science class uh, then then by all means you should know it and i pray that you know it but uh, you know so I'll, I'll try to get through it quickly but it's important to go over this as a foundation for understanding public policy analysis so essentially today we'll be attempting to answer what is public policy uh, what are the goals of public policy why does government take action and, and what factors affect policymaking, as well as how can we improve the policies that are made by government? So let's start by answering the question, what's a policy in general? Well, a policy is a purposive course of action that an individual or group consistently follows in dealing with a problem. They can come in both the public and the private sectors. Uh, if you In the private sector, if you think about HR policies, um, you know, internet use or sexual harassment policies. Those are all policies that exist uh, in the private sector. And then in public sector, you know, those workplace policies also exist, but, but public policies ex exist, you know, that pertain to the general public. So what specifically then is public policy? Well, if a policy in general is a purposive course of action that an individual or group consistently follows in dealing with a problem, then, they, then public policy is a government action that deals with public problems. And this is essentially all that government at all levels is supposed to do. The problem, if the public has a problem, well, the government tries to deal with it. It's unfortunately not that simple, though. So what is a public problem? Well, public problems, the idea of public problems may seem intuitive, um, but there is a definition, and it is that a public problem is a condition that the public perceives to be unacceptable and therefore require intervention. Public problems are things that are not being solved by the free market or by individuals, and so the government is tasked with stepping in and dealing with them. 
So in order for the government to resolve the problem, a course of action must be determined. Uh, for example, do we need a new law? Do we need a new program? Is the tax needed to pay for additional support in an area that's insufficient, etc.? The process by which the course of action is selected is public policy analysis. So why do we have policies? We have policies to protect the public good. And the public good has essentially two primary definitions. First of all, it's a commodity that's provided without profit to all members of society. And so this would include things like trash pickup, snow removal, police and fire, road repair, and then a public good is also the benefit and well-being of the public. So having established what public policies are uh, and, and why we have them, we must know what some basic concepts are that fall within understanding public policy analysis. And these concepts are government, politics, informal policy actors, context of public policy, and public policy analysis. So first, let's get into the government. So government refers to the institutions and political processes through which public policy choices are made. So when I think about government and the origins of government, I, I can't help but think about social contract theory. Uh, and social contract theory is primarily derived from the writings of three individuals, so John Locke, Thomas Hobbes, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And, you know, while the details differ, in some cases they differ a lot, the, the basis of all three of those theories is essentially that societies formed and then created this social contract or agreement among the individuals by which power was given to a governing body to secure the mutual protection and welfare of the community and to regulate the relations among its members. And, you know, um, early American writings, um, they, they relied heavily on John Locke. And so it's not surprising that, that this sentiment was reflected in the preamble of our Constitution, which states, quote, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our prosperity, end quote. So with this social contract, the government does get involved then in, in dealing with uh, public problems. But why, why, what are the reasons that government would get involved? Well, they could be political reasons, moral or ethical reasons, and economic and market failures. So political reasons. Political reasons refer to the pursuit of policy agendas that play well to a party base. And so if we think about recent examples, they include the attempted repeal of the Affordable Care Act and then the tax plan. These two were vital campaign issues that, that influenced the outcome of the election. And so then, because they were vital campaign issues, they, they became matters um, of public policy and got on the agenda and were attempted to deal with by, um, by Congress and the president. As for moral or ethical reasons, uh, those refer to the idea that we have a moral obligation to step in and take action and be, in essence, a good Samaritan. An example of this would be the justification that was used to wage war in Iraq, where one of the reasons stated that we had a moral imperative to remove Saddam Hussein and to promote the growth of freedom and democracy in the Middle East. The same could be said about the, the Syrian crisis that's happening right now or any other humanitarian crisis that exists. So that leads us to economic and market failures, which refer to the conditions in which the free market does not solve a problem. So when thinking about economic and market failures, a few terms need to be defined. The first is monopolies. Monopolies are market failures because they fail to provide competitiveness in the market and, and give one company too much control. The next term is externalities. Externalities are transactions between two parties that affect a third party. There's positive and negative externalities that the government makes policy regarding. So positive externality is where a third party benefits from a transaction. And an example of this would be public education. The government provides public education because it benefits all taxpayers when the society is educated and there's a direct correlation between educational attainment and the health of the local economy. 
A negative externality is where a third party is harmed by a transaction. So an example of this would be water or air pollution. There are negative impacts on public health caused by pollution, so the government has uh, to step in and try to limit the amount of pollution that exists for the sake of public health. The next term to define is information failure. And this is where government steps in to provide more information to the public because the private sector is failing to do so. Uh, examples of this would be nutritional information or the, the one that better comes to mind is the Surgeon General, General's warning about the dangers of smoking cigarettes. Finally, market failures include areas where the free market may harm things that we all enjoy. So the government steps in for protection of the public or the collective good. Examples of this would be the protection of wetlands or national parks. These reasons for government involvement are not mutually exclusive. One public policy initiative could be framed using a combination of all of these. For, so, for example, if we think about the current debate about the, the border wall, we've heard arguments that frame it as a political issue. Uh, President Trump campaigned heavily on this, so he's appealing to the base that helped elect him to accomplish one of the major platforms from his campaign. Uh, we've heard it framed from a moral or ethical perspective. President Trump may declare a national emergency to build the wall, citing a humanitarian crisis along the border. Additionally, it has been argued that gangs and murderers are freely entering the country due to a lack of security that the wall will supposedly provide. And finally, we've heard it framed from an economic perspective. Not only is it the sticking point keeping the government shut down, uh, one argument for the wall is to keep illegal Americans from coming into the U.S. unchecked and taking jobs that would otherwise be filled by Americans. Now, I am not here to determine what is right or wrong in this case. I'm going to keep my opinion as much as I can to myself throughout these lectures. Uh, but the point is that no matter what side of the aisle you sit in, your reasons to build or to not build the wall are likely to be framed using one of these reasons, all of these reasons, two of these reasons, whether it's moral, whether it's economic, whether it's political, there's the, it'll be framed using one of those. So when we think about public policy today, we also have to understand how government has evolved over time. You know, the original government was, was quite small. Uh, compared to today. In 1788, the government consisted of 13 states, 65 representatives, 26 senators, and only three cabinet-level departments, which were Treasury, War, and Foreign Affairs. The Justice Department was added very soon after, but at first it was only three. Compare that to today's government, which consists of 50 states, 435 representatives, 100 senators, 15 cabinet-level departments, various agencies and bureaus, a postal service, and a hidden workforce of government contractors that, quite frankly, I don't know how large that is, but it is extremely large. One of the reasons that the government has grown so much is the increase in the population. In 1790, there was approximately 4 million people in the United States. So for reference, that's about the same number of people that are in Los Angeles and about half the number of people in New York City. In 2018, there was about 324 million, and this number grows each and every day. So not only has the number of people increased dramatically, but the physical size of the United States has as well. As you know, we started out with 13 colonies along the East Coast, but now we span from one coast to another and have Alaska and Hawaii and, and other territories uh, outside of the contiguous United States. There are several other reasons for government growth, uh, which include the complexity of society. You know, advancements in technology, science, and business operations have led to a great deal of new regulations to address issues that obviously did not apply to the country in the late 1700s. There's also the public's acceptance of business regulation. The Constitution does not mention anything about preventing monopolies, food safety, air and water quality, or child labor. The acceptance of regulation has transitioned the American economy away from being a free market economy towards a mixed economy or a regulated economy. 
And many of these regulations came about during the Industrial Revolution and in F FDR's New Deal due to social pressures. A prime example of one such social pressure would be Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, the book highlighted the harsh working conditions in industrialized cities. Another reason that the government has grown so much is, is the role in social wealth, welfare. The New Deal signaled the government's responsibility to provide a minimum level of support for certain individuals, including the poor, farmers, and the elderly. Moving forward, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society expanded those commitments into the administration of social welfare programs. Today, social, uh, social Security is the single largest government program, and it requires a very large organization to administer it. Along with our role in social welfare, our role in the world has changed. The emergence of the U.S. as a superpower after the Second World War led us to take a larger role in world affairs. This obviously caused growth in the departments of state and defense, but additionally, as the result of the attacks on 9-11, the Department of Homeland Security was created. And our expanding role in the world also caused growth in departments that have a peripheral connection to foreign affairs, like the EPA or commerce or agriculture. Finally, citizens are simply demanding more from the government. Examples of this include additional police protection and health care for the elderly. We will talk in a, minute, in a minute about how the fastest growing demographic in the U.S. is senior citizens. The demand being placed on and caring for them is helping to grow the size of government, as I mentioned, with our role in social welfare. But another example is the Affordable Care Act and the growth in government that it caused. This was a completely new program and it required uh, new functions. It required a website. Things like that helped to grow the government. And all this growth, it does, it has effects. And some of the effects of government growth is that it's led to an entire occupational sector. What does this mean? It means that the government at all levels, all levels are major employers. And right now we're in the midst of the government shutdown. So we've been hearing about, um, you know, the federal government employees that are currently not working and not getting paid. But the occupational center is in the state government, it is in local government. So for example, I, I'm from Ohio and I used to work for the city of Cincinnati. And the city of Cincinnati employs 6,300 6, people. So government at all levels has this huge uh, occupational sector. Governments ha also have a substantial impact on economic sectors that now rely on government programs, contracts, and spending. So again, using an Ohio example, uh, think about Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in the Dayton region. That base has an economic impact annually of $4.3 billion. The entire aerospace industry in the Dayton area is reliant on the government contracts and grants that are available because Wright-Patterson is located there. Uh, along associated with that, so while I was at the city of Cincinnati, I used to manage a program uh, for the Southwest Ohio Aerospace Region. It's a federal designation that covers 19 counties across the Cincinnati and Dayton area. And, the, and this region received this designation because of the amount of aerospace manufacturing companies that were there due to Wright-Patterson. And receiving or not receiving government contracts or grants could make or break many, many of those companies. So secondly, the scope of government increases the likelihood of conflicting policies. This in turn makes it more difficult to address societal problems. And finally, policymaking in large and complex governments takes more time and effort. The bigger the government, the more complex the problem and the harder it is to analyze problems, discuss policy alternatives, decide on solutions, and implement the programs and policies. This leads to gridlock, which we're very familiar with in the current political environment, or vague compromises that are difficult to administer and may not have the intended policy outcomes. So understanding the growth of government and uh, what causes that, let's take a deeper look at 
the government institutions themselves, so the separation of powers. If we go back to the start, the nation founders created a system of checks and balances, and this was done so that the government was, no single portion of the government was, was capable of tyrannizing the population. They had just fought a war to get out from under a rule that they considered to be tyrannous, and so they wanted to create a government that would not allow for that to happen again. So they created a political system with three main branches of government, which hopefully you know are the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. The separation of government powers has policy implications. Often it means that policymaking is not capable of responding to most public problems in a timely and coherent manner. Furthermore, political divisiveness can make government incapable of acting on policy. An example is obviously the government shutdown and the border wall where we see Congress and the president unable to come to an agreement that would put the occupational sector of the federal government back to work. Not all policymaking is slow. When policy receives broad bipartisan support, the government's able to act quickly. So examples of this include disaster relief at most of the time, and uh, the passage of the Patriot Act after the 9-11 tax was very fast and bipartisan. Uh, we'll get into more about the Patriot Act uh, later on in, in a different episode. Additionally, included in our form of government is a federal system where state and federal authority are separate, but they do overlap. And this has policy implications as well. It means that state laws may afford citizens of certain states rights and privileges that people in other states do not have and can cause major disagreements between the states and the federal governments. So obvious, the obvious example that comes to my mind is, is marijuana. In some states, it's still illegal. In some states, it's legal medically if you have a certain condition. And in some states, it's legal recreationally. And according to the federal government, it is still definitely illegal. So that causes uh, confusion and um, complications. And a result of this fragmented government and the role that politics plays in it is that it often means that policy changes are somewhere between gridlock and innovation. And so this is called incremental policymaking. And incremental policymaking simply means that small steps are taken and changes occur slowly. There are adjustments taken at the margins of existing policies. These incremental policy changes can ultimately lead to larger policy implications. So for an example of this, I'll think about the tax bill that was passed by Congress. Prior to that, Congress was unable to come up with a consensus on the repeal and the replacement of the Affordable Care Act. However, in the tax bill that was passed, the individual mandate penalty for not having health insurance was eliminated. And some argue that this incremental change may result in the Affordable Care Act being reformed or even repealed. So, with that said, Let's get into each of the branches of government. So the legislative branch is the lawmaking branch of government. We have a two-house or a bicameral Congress. There's, uh, in addition to the number of representatives and the number of senators, there are over 200 congressional committees and subcommittees where staff support the legislators and, and initiate research policy proposals. Then there's the executive branch which is the law enforcement branch of the government. It consists of the office of the president and is involved in all aspects of policy making. It also includes all of the executive agencies and all of the cabinet level departments. And finally, there's the judicial branch, which is the law interpreting branch of the government with several levels of court, including the Supreme Court, circuit courts, and district courts. And the decisions that they make become precedent for how laws get enforced in the future. So these three branches of government are supposed to create a balance of power, which has both advantages and disadvantages. Uh, advantages include uh, distributing power across a wide range of, of people. For example, both houses of Congress and the president must agree on policy, which means that the policies get thoroughly vetted before they are passed. Also, 
The people and other actors have a great deal of input and can make an impact on the process. And I think that this especially holds true at the local level. Uh, I've already mentioned some of the disadvantages, uh, such as the policymaking process being slow and often leading to gridlock. But also, issues often are often complex and there are sharp differences in ways to approach them. And so again, the result is likely to be incremental policy making uh, versus big sweeping reforms. So let's go ahead and take a deeper look at, at federalism, which I mentioned a minute ago. The system of federalism is established by the 10th Amendment, which states the powers not delegated to the federal government by the Constitution are reserved to the states or to the people. States' rights versus the federal government have been a point of contention throughout U.S. history. Notable examples include the Virginia-Kentucky Resolutions, which argued that the Alien Sedition Acts were unconstitutional and the states did not have to follow federal law when they perceived something to be outside the scope of federal government. Uh, and then South Carolina threatened to secede during Andrew Jackson's administration. And Jackson kept this from happening by marching the army there. Then, of course, is the Civil War, which was fought about states' rights and the ability for states to determine whether or not they would like to have slavery. So this question of states' rights versus federal government has existed since the beginning, and it will continue to exist um, uh, you know, as we move forward. But historically, generally speaking, the government operated what is known as dual federalism and provided a clear separation of responsibility. States were in charge of education and transportation, and the federal government was in charge of national defense and trade. Today, we operate under more of a cooperative federalism where the responsibilities between the states and federal government is blurred. So an example of this would be the federal government stepping in and making education-based policies, such as the No Child Left Behind Act. So starting with the Great Depression and the New Deal and lasting through the 1960s, the federal government was the dominant policy actor, and that was kind of by necessity. The, the Great Depression um, required more than what the states and local governments were capable of doing. And the, the federal government had, had to step in, and it grew immensely during that time. And so it's, it wasn't surprising that the federal government was the domin dominant policy actor. Things, however, started to shift in the 1970s and the 1980s, wherein the states were granted more control over policy by the federal government. This was done through block and categorical grants, which provided states with funding that they could spend at their discretion or with some strings tied, but it gave the states more power in the policymaking process. This then shifted again and led to unfunded mandates, and this is where the federal government requires states to take action but gives little or no funding to go with it. And so an example of an unfunded mandate would be admission standards that the federal government implemented and made the states enforce. Also, K-12 education itself is essentially an unfunded mandate because school funding is almost entirely state-driven, but the fact that we need to have K-12 education is mandated by the federal government. So unfunded mandates have forced state and local governments to play a larger role today in the development and implementation of public policy, especially when it comes to find, filling funding gaps for programs. So we kind of mentioned this before, but policy capacity with the states refers to the ability of state government to identify, assess, and respond to public problems. So as, as you know, the states are playing a larger role, this question of, of policy capacity within the states comes up. And you know, both major political parties do seem interested in continuing this decentralization of power to states. And this can be seen as a good thing because state and local governments are quicker to act on certain policy matters versus the federal government. And those in favor of states having authority argue that they know the citizens better than the federal government and therefore can better handle public problems. And that's simply because they are closer to uh, the people. However, some question whether states have the capacity to handle additional responsibilities. 
and the reason for this is states differ in a number of key areas, including size, population, industrialization, and affluence. California, for example, is is much more different is much different than Ohio, which is much different than Wyoming. What works well for one state may not work for another. So some argue that also argue that businesses and industries can exert far more influence at the state and local level than they can at the national level. Then you have the policy issues that cross state boundaries and conflict with federal government authority, which like the legalization of marijuana, as I mentioned before. Um, and so this question of, of states' rights and who should have what, as I mentioned, it persisted throughout history, and it's, it's going to continue moving forward. And there's no right answer. Um, whether the federal government should be in charge, states should be in charge, everybody's going to have their opinion. There's no correct answer. But to sum up government, our form of government ensures broad and balanced input to policy, but this slows and complicates the process. Also, the balance of power among states and federal governments leads to question about which level of government is responsible. And with that, we're going to shift and define politics. Politics concerns the exercise of power in society or the different decisions over public policy. It has several different but complementary meanings. So the first definition is politics is the process by which public policies are formulated and adopted especially when thinking about elected officials, organized interest groups, public opinion, and, of course, political parties. It also means, uh, politics are also how conflicts in society are expressed and resolved in favor of one set of interests or social values versus another. And finally, politics is the electoral process by which citizens elect policymakers to represent them. Politics exert a strong influence in policymaking, and we have seen in recent years that there, that the reason public policy is so riddled with conflict can be attributed to politics. So the next term we want to define is informal policy actors. Informal policy actors are those groups or people outside of government that influence policy. Examples include the public, interest groups, Iron Triangles and the media. So let's talk about those for a minute. What is meant by the public can have several different meanings. There's the general public, which is everyone. There's the voting public, which consists only of the people that actually cast a vote, which in the 2018 midterms elections was only 47%, which is sad, uh, but it was actually the highest or the, yeah, the highest turnout in 50 years for midterm elections, but it was only 47%, less than half. Then there's the attentive public, which if you're listening to this or you're in my class, um, you would more than likely fall into the attentive public. And those are the folks who are engaged in the process and get to know and understand the issues. The attentive public is estimated to only be about 10% of the population. But because they are engaged, they often exert the most influence on public policy. So uh, no matter how you define the word public, how the public feels about an issue or a set of issues at any given time is public opinion. Uh, the problem with that is often that there is no public consensus on an issue. And public opinion is usually expressed as the sum of attitudes and opinions of the adult population and, and is usually measured by polling a random sample of people, which according to standard research methods, a poll of 1,000 to 1,200 people is likely to be within about three percentage points of the entire population. Surveys, however, can be very problematic because of question bias uh, and then there's also whether or not it was conducted on a true random sample. That can always be debated. So things like internet polls and those conducted by interest groups are not likely to be considered accurate. Um, Twitter polls certainly would not be considered accurate. But thankfully, beyond surveys, there are numerous ways to express public opinion. And these would include voting, uh, attending meetings, uh, writing, speaking to government officials, joining interest groups, uh, supporting referendums and initiatives on local ballots, or, you know, starting a podcast. Anyway, 
These all constitute forms of direct citizen involvement in the policymaking process. Unfortunately, most citizens are not informed about policy matters, which is why the attentive public has the most influence in the process. Another term that is important to understand when thinking about public opinion is stability, and stability refers to the continuation of opinion over time. Public opinion can sway in one direction or another by current events, but eventually it is likely to stabilize. So an example would be the, quote, rally around the flag effect, where patriotic feelings spike due to a terrorist event or an international crisis. Uh, the swaying of public opinion in things like presidential approval rate happens because very few Americans hold a consistently strong political ideology. They are affected by their environment, and so their opinion on things changes as they grow or as they learn more information. So then we have interest groups. Organized interest groups exert major influence on public policy. Activity in these groups has soared since 1960. And there are two types of interest groups. The first is public interest groups, which promote issues of general public concern. Uh, these would include the Sierra Club, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Uh, and so it's about you know environmental protection, human rights, consumer rights. Um, so I think even the National Rifle Association would fall into uh, this this public interest group type. The second would be special interest groups, which are a group of people or organizations seeking or receiving special advantages, typically through political lobbying. So you could argue then the NRA would be this as well. But for the purposes of, of this conversation, where I'm more or less thinking about labor unions or professional associations uh, in terms of special interest groups. And while not technically an interest group, nonprofit organizations operate in a similar fashion in that they advocate for a particular policy. Nonprofits and, and public policy interact in four ways. Nonprofits can help make policy. They certainly can influence policy, they are affected by policy, and they are subject to policy governing operations. So I mentioned lobbying uh, when talking uh, about special interest groups. The form formal definition of lobbying is seeking to influence a politician or a public official on a particular issue. Interest groups and nonprofits, depending on the type of nonprofit, um, if you want to know more about the different types of nonprofit, uh, there's plenty of information about it, but some have, some are more restricted than others. But anyway, uh, interest groups and nonprofits try to influence government in several different ways. So there's there's reports, there are studies, there's news releases, there's commercials, there's candidate endorsements, there's political contributions, there's uh, sponsor issue advertising, and then there's also litigation. And all these activities are meant to either create public awareness or sway public opinion in their favor to indirectly affect policy or to directly influence the policy or policy-making body. And the role of interest groups in the U.S. system of government is important for understanding the policy-making process. However, it also raises questions that are fundamental to a democracy, such as are ordinary citizens well-represented in the activities of interest groups. Do certain groups and segments of the population, such as corporate interests and wealthy citizens, have privileged access at the expense of others? And to what extent should the activities of interest groups be restricted in some way to promote policy developments that serve the public interest? And so the next term we want to, uh, the next group that we want to define are iron triangles. So often policymaking occurs in formal settings or venues and involves policy actors within specific issue areas such as national defense, communications, agriculture. And these are called uh, sub-governments, issue networks, or iron triangles. And they usually operate under the radar of most citizens and are less likely to be influenced by citizen values or policy preferences. So another way to think of iron triangles is, is a three-way relationship. On, on one point of the triangle, we have the bureaucracy. On another point, we have uh, congressperson. 
And then on the third, we have the lobbyist. And that results in the mutual benefit of all three of them. So if we think about an example, defense procurement decision making would be one. Uh, policy around this issue involves the Congressional Armed Services Committee, the Department of Defense, and the private defense contractors who build the weapons. All three of these groups tend to favor increased spending for defense, but they work together towards provision of defense systems, usually without much involvement, oversight, or criticism by those who are not part of the Iron Triangle. And quite frankly, in, in, in those terms, that's classified information because we don't want to share the information of what weapon systems we're looking to develop or buy. So that's uh, one of the reasons that it's behind the, behind the curtain, so to speak. However, with movements towards open government, these groups are becoming increasingly visible to the public. However, they are still able to influence public policy without the influence of outside factors. Finally, we have the media. In the U.S., we do have freedom of speech and the freedom of the press that's granted to us in the First Amendment of the Constitution. And this em empowers the media to play a significant role in shaping public opinion. So if we think about Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, whatever news media outlet there is, some outlets uh, argue that they're trying to be objective. Others try to spin stories, get their public opinion to shift one way or another. Um, you know, that's for you to determine which one's which. I am not going to share an opinion on that, but having a free media is great because we have access to a wealth of information. However, as media has evolved and social media in particular has grown, the power of the media in shaping a public opinion has increased and been shown that in the wrong hands, information coming from the media or social media can be weaponized, which is where we get this idea of, of fake news. So those are the... Um, outside policy actors that influence public policies. The next thing we want to talk about are the contexts of, so, of public policy. And so at this point, we've defined what policy is. We understand the different policy actors. We understand how the government structure affects public policy. And so the contexts are the factors that affect policy making. While all kinds of things affect policy making, they can generally be lumped into five categories. There's First, the social context. So if you've listened to the last episode, episode four, where I talk about the importance of demographics and, and my love of data and information, the social context is, is along those lines. Uh, demographics play a very large role in public policymaking. Demographics give an analytical snapshot of the people that make up a community by detailing socioeconomic information such as age, education, race, gender, uh, labor force, and income. As demographics change, it alters how the public and the policymakers view and act on social problems. So for example, nationally, the fastest growing demographic is senior citizens. This will affect how social security is dealt with. On a local level, many cities are seeing an urban renaissance, which is causing drastic changes with things like retail and multifamily development. This redevelopment is bringing in a lot of new residents. It's shifting the, demogra the demographic makeup of neighborhoods, and, and which leads to concerns over gentrification. And this gentrification is pricing long-time long residents out of the market. And so city officials many times have to promote or work to ensure the availability of affordable housing options for those people. Meanwhile, that same development also puts a strain on existing parking systems and local governments are tasked with addressing those issues. So as you can see, the social context has a wide reach or ripple effect into numerous policy areas. Next is the economic context. The strength or weakness of the economy is a definite factor that affects public policy. Think about the New Deal again, which was a direct result of the Great Depression. The New Deal created a number of new federal agencies, including the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC, which protects the money that you have in a bank. Fast forward and think about the last recession, which we saw 
the federal government bail out major companies like GM, Chrysler, and Ford. Additionally, the American economy is currently shifting away from traditional manufacturing into this advanced manufacturing. And technological advancements are moving faster than everyone else, and it's moving faster than education, which is leaving skills gaps and workforce issues that need to be resolved. Another way to showcase the economic context of public policy is by thinking about the budget. Whether it, it, it is the federal, state, or local government, budgetary concerns will greatly affect policy and programs. So the next context is, uh, once again, political. Political parties can wield major impacts in the shaping of public policy. Partisan politics is something that we're all dealing with now. It seems that at the federal level, unless a party has a majority in both houses of Congress, uh, that shares the same party as the president, and nothing truly gets done to tackle a social problem because reconciling partisan or ideological different differences is proving to be extremely difficult. So outside of the current government shutdown and uh, the border debate, another example would be comprehensive gun reform, which is a topic that gets talked about a lot, especially with each new mass shooting event that occurs, but it rarely gets tried uh, one, because of the power of the NRA lobby, but secondly, because of the, di the divisiveness and the political divide that exists around the issue. So to my point about things only getting passed if the president and Congress share a party and, and both houses in Congress are majority one party, examples of that would be the Affordable Care Act, which passed with little or no Republican support and then we move forward to the tax bill, which passed with little or no Democratic support. And the result of these partisan politics, as stated before, is incremental policy or temporary fixes and compromises, like short-term spending bills that prior to this shutdown, you know, kept the government open. And they're similar to the ones that, are, that I heard being proposed, where we would open the government for three weeks while we talk about other issues. And so the issue is we have these compromised policies that get passed and they can be broadly or vaguely worded and leaves administrators and potentially the judicial branches with the task of figuring out the intent of the policy or finding policy outcomes that are not the anticipated consequence or, or quite frankly, just pushing, pro kicking problems down the road just a little bit. Which then leads into the governing context. The complexity of the US government system means that there are many people that play a role in the policy process, and that was done by design. But then, obviously, as we've stated, differences can take a very long time to be ironed out. It's further complicated with the lines between the federal government and the state government responsibility becoming more and more blurred. And an example of that we used before is the federal government stepping into the educational policy making. Uh, That's a role that was tra traditionally done by the state. And that leads us to the final cultural context. The cultural context of public policy refers to the widely held values, beliefs, and attitudes such as trust and confidence in government and the political process. It also includes the commitment to individualism, property rights, freedom, and equality. These values are acquired through political socialization that takes place in families, schools, society in general, and sometimes reflects pop culture. You know, your political beliefs and values are highly shaped by your family, your friends, your church, your teachers, your school. Uh, and, and so this can explain the differences in red states and blue states and the different political ideologies that exist in urban areas versus rural areas. And so having established what those five contexts are, we can finally talk about public policy analysis. Public policy analysis is the examination of everything that we've talked about today, the various components of public policy, the policy process, the government institutions, or all of that. It's a systematic method for studying problems, the nature and scope of problems, proposals, policy alternatives, possible actions, and policy outcomes. In conducting policy analysis, analysts dissect problems and, and find possible solutions and good policy analysis should equal better policy. 
So we'll get more into this in, in future episodes, but the evaluative criteria that's used in policy analysis is effectiveness, efficiency, equity, and political feasibility. And this evaluative criteria helps policymakers ask, well, did the policy alleviate the problem? Was the policy fair and equitable? And did the policy impinge too much on our freedoms? And then finally, will the policy be feasible to implement? But why should we study public policy? Well, I would say that because it improves the ability to participate and take a position on an issue. As a citizen, you have the ability to influence public policy at all levels of government. Probably the most immediate impact you can have is at the local level. And I'll use an example from my work to highlight that. So in the community that I work in, there's a former golf course property that was purchased with an eye towards economic development. It's approximately 100 acres and it's located directly on a major interstate. So it's a, it's a very good greenfield site. Uh, there was a proposed mixed-use development on the site that would have brought apartments and retail development. But a group of residents were adamantly opposed to the site being developed in this manner. They wanted it to be a park. They understood the process in which approval would be granted for this project, and they spoke out, they attended meetings, they you know, talked to the elected officials, and their speaking out disrupted the process. And needless to say, today that property is a park. It's going to stay a park, um, you know, for the distant future. So by understanding public policy, you can insert yourself to the process, be heard, and influence the outcome. You know, and also throughout history, it's been very important to study public policy, but in if I can get on a soapbox real quick, in today's political environment, I think it's especially important. No matter what your political affiliation might be, I don't care. Uh, you are entitled to your opinion. You have freedom of speech. There are so many major things happening at all levels of government, though, that we need well-informed citizens to cut through the muck and get involved. So, you know, and we can think of examples like climate change, healthcare, immigration, small business development, and entrepreneurship. And these things are not just federal level things. These are local level things. Many cities have green initiatives looking about how to reduce environmental impact at a local level. Um, a small business accounts for over half of all job creation in the country. The availability of healthcare and social services affects all people. The list goes on, but you get the point. Understanding the process, making an impact, educating yourself. That's what we need in today's political climate, probably now more than ever. And finally, uh, you know, as these lectures go on, I will get into specific policy areas, economics, budgetary policy, healthcare policy, welfare, social security, education, environment, foreign policy, and homeland. I'm gonna to try to bring in, you know, I try to focus a lot on local government. The conversation will have a, a major national focus, but I'm gonna to try to, to put those examples of local government in there. And with that, I just want to say thank you again for joining me. I hope you enjoyed this lecture uh, and that you'll tune into future ones. You know, as always, you can find me on my website, suburbanurbanist.com, suburbanurbanist.com, or by email at suburbanurbanist at gmail.com. And uh, thank you again. I'll let you get back to your day, and I'll catch you on the next episode.